So through all these things, these things I probably could have addressed earlier in the deal, but I think I was just so excited about finding something that seemed like a reasonable valuation. And I was like driving back and forth from San Diego to LA almost like every week, every other week to go through on a Sunday, just like comb through all of these files, come through all these paper documents. The seller was like not very cooperative and would say like, oh, I don't know how to pull that report. I don't know how to do this. I have to like log into his computers and like pull all this stuff. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Eric, we had a Great conversation with Catherine Dextrays, who I know reasonably well working with her. This was literally the first time you talked to Catherine, right? What 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 did you come away with our our conversation? Well, it was first time talking to Catherine. Her have heard incredible things about her up to today, and she lived up to it full stop. You know, the the thrust of this pod, Kevin, is to to try to show people, or part of the objective is to show people business buying and, you know, the mundane millionaire lifestyle that comes along with that sometimes, sometimes through other avenues, but, you know, oftentimes through acquisition entrepreneurship and to show that normal everyday people are doing that, doing it. And this episode is not going to achieve that goal because Catherine is an extraordinary individual. She's clearly a genius, and I address it head on at the end. She's a nuclear scientist you know, by training, and she ends up acquiring an alternative energy business. But still a ton of fun takeaways, right? And she you know, bought a business that is largely remote, which you know, gives her and her business that geographical control that a lot of people are seeking right now. We talk about remote work, which is obviously a hot button. Right topic and we you know have strong feelings on that and a lot of other fun things Kevin what, what was your takeaway here yeah I mean along the lines of what you're talking about you know I think it's important also for people to hear from someone like Catherine who has a nuclear physicist by background or whatever but just so incredibly relatable right because like the whole conversation I'm like yeah we could be doing this you know in a bar over a beer Right. That, that's what the mundane millionaire is to me. And, and, you know, big takeaway that like, no matter the background, you know, your degree field, your career background or whatever, ultimately a pretty typical search with some pretty typical like starts and stops. She had a deal blow up. Um, and we talk a lot about that, like what led to kind of the first real transaction she was pursuing falling apart you know, some lessons learned from that, that, that spun into the, the deal she ultimately closed. And so you, you combine all of those different things with the result of, you know, small business acquisition, young CEO leaving the corporate life. And it's, you know, kind of, I would say the the story is old as time, but it's, it, it's not, it's such a fascinating growing new phenomenon with a, with a silver tsunami that we, that we talk about all the time. So yeah, I, I, Thought it was a great conversation. Learned a ton from her. 
Yeah, and, and one more thing, you know, I am such a big proponent of learning from people who have had failure and adversity in their life. Like that, yeah. to me, I always look to people who have had, you know, life setbacks, health scares, you know, people who have, have faced issues and failures because those are the people that like get it full stop. And yeah. Catherine, having had the busted deal, like those, go talk to people who, if you're an aspiring acquisition entrepreneur, go talk to people and listen to people who have tried and have failed. Because when you fail in ETA entrepreneurship through acquisition, it's expensive and it's embarrassing, right? And you're trying to change your whole life, buying a business, oftentimes moving, your spouse is is counting on you. You've got kids you're trying to figure out where you're going to put them in school. And then you get deep into a process. It's emotionally, you know, whatever. And then yep. it fails. Like, if you decide to pursue a, another acquisition after that, which some people do, some people don't, the those buyers come back like crazy people that have learned some really valuable lessons and almost always succeed in acquisition number two. So if you're looking to learn from folks, Catherine and other buyers who've, who've had similar experiences are incredible people. So she talks a lot about that. I think that's probably the, the best takeaway here in the in the pod. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, ho hope people get as much from it as as we did. So uh, we'll we'll let our conversation speak for itself and dig right in. So Kevin, I'll be leaning on you here today in this conversation, given that we have kind of an interesting dynamic. You know Catherine well, or you know I'll let you describe how you know her, but you represented her in her recent acquisition, and I this is Catherine and I's first time speaking, so kind of an interesting yin and yang dynamic here. So Catherine, nice to meet you and welcome to the pod. Um, yeah, thanks so much. Eric. And so you tell us about your transaction and your, your interaction with how, how well do you guys know each other? Well, I think the first time I reached out to Kevin was over a year ago. I, I actually right. first reached out to him because of his experience in the canvas space. And I, I had come across this really interesting cannabis quality testing lab in Arizona and wanted to get his thoughts on what was going on out there. And then ultimately ended up, he ended up, you know, being my lawyer for one of my deals that didn't go through. <laughs> and then, We're gonna and then eventually that. I actually paid his fees for the deal that did, that did go through. So it was, it was a long-term relationship. Sorry. It was probably uh, nightmare accounts receivable on your end <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> no but it's it, it's all alleviated by the fact that when Catherine reached out and i saw where she was from i was like oh this this person's gonna be my best friend right so for those that don't know Catherine's from san diego which i firmly believe is the the greatest city in america and so you know that that sent her right to the top of the yeah well We'll get on the phone. We'll do what it takes. Uh, we'll be flexible. And uh, yeah, so we, we had some oh, and interesting. I, and I, I think I owe you a closing dinner as a result, right? <laughs> well, next time I'm in San Diego, that's uh, easy. Well, you guys are best friends now, right? So, um, right. So, you had an right. interesting, when you said best friends, you had this look on your face. You're like, we're not best friends. <laughs> <laughs> How do I tell um, but yeah, so your your search was super fascinating, and and it is fun to be in the position of like having been involved through that search process because you looked at multiple businesses, then you went under LOI, um, and didn't ultimately close on that one. So so let's maybe start there and talk about 
that search and kind of that, that path into entrepreneurship. And then with that stage set, maybe we'll rewind a little bit um, and talk, you know, talk more about what led up to that, but catch us up quickly on sort of your search process and, and, you know, what led you ultimately to the acquisition that you closed, I think in, in January, if I have my timeline, right? Uh, well, February, February. That's right. Yeah, we had some life insurance delays. That's a whole other thing. There's a lot of there's a lot of drama built in to this whole situation. <laughs> drama makes but, for great <laughs> podcasting, Catherine. So, all right, I'll try to do a dramatic retelling. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I my search started in late November, early December of 2021. I knew I wanted to do self funded. I was really focused on sort of retaining majority ownership because I wanted to make sure I could sort of retain control of, of the business and be able to have, you know, that full autonomy. So at first, when I started my search, like I think a lot of self-funded searchers out there, I had the misconception that I needed to bring all the equity to the table. So I was looking at pretty small deals kind of in the healthcare space and some kind of medical imaging technology. Like there was this mobile x-ray business that I thought was really cool. Anyway, very high capex, not a good move. Didn't work out. Um, <laughs> and I was having I was having a lot of trouble getting credibility with the brokers, so they like wouldn't even talk to me, wouldn't even let me see the sim because they didn't know who I was. And I was listening to this podcast. You know, this was kind of like as SMB space was booming and all the podcasts were coming out. I heard Robert Graham on a podcast. Wanted to connect with him because of his experience in the home health space. And ultimately, you know, he's he also has Search Investment Group with his two other partners, Aaron and Jordan. So ultimately, I decided to partner with Search Investment Group in like late January of 20, so it's 20 yeah, 2022. Right. So yeah. then, sorry, I feel like I can't keep the year straight anymore. And so that really kind of like turbocharged my search and took me to the to the next level, helped me get under LOI with with a few other situations. But that's that's pretty much how things started. And I was kind of more interested in healthcare and healthcare adjacent services and some kind of more, I would say, critical B2B services. So that was and, what my search was built around. And was the, was the healthcare focus due to your background? Because I think your background in education deals with healthcare, if, if I remember correctly, right? Or, or, or was it out of an actual, I guess what I'm saying is what was your interest really focused on healthcare or was your search initially focused on healthcare just because that was the background and you thought if that's the background in education I have, that's where I have to stay in my search. Uh, yeah, I would say that it was kind of the latter. I think, you know, there's obviously a strong thesis around it. It works. That's why Robert's been so successful with Pillar Health Group. But I think also I had this, I have a, I have a weird background. I've done a couple different things already in my life, um, but I had spent about five years doing medical imaging research at a cancer research institute in Texas called MD Anderson. And so I felt like I could sort of bring that experience and those learnings and that I had clinical experience um, there as well and sort of bring that to the next level and sort of use that to build credibility within the space. And so I think that's why I did originally focus on healthcare. Ultimately, it was really hard for me to find a quality opportunity at a reasonable valuation. Yeah. And so I needed to expand my search because I think 
coming hot off the end of COVID and all of the COVID incentives that were in place is just the, the valuations were just way too high. Yeah, we you're you're one of a handful of of searchers we've we've worked with since since Eric and I launched SMB Law Group that have kind of looked at the healthcare space and given the timing found exactly the same thing. Ultimately none of them have have you know closed in a healthcare related business I think largely due to those economics just didn't make they, they just it's hard to make sense and make pencil out wh whether the valuations were justified or not for a self-funded search. So it's a it's a, a a story we've certainly heard before, despite it being a, a super fascinating sector. So, yeah. Gavin, what's the upshot? Where what type of business did you end up buying in? What what industry? So I ended up closing on a B two B services business that is in the solar industry. So they essentially are you know business process outsourcing for contractors and installers. Got it. Okay. In, in solar, my understanding is solar has been pretty incentive intensive as well in recent years. I mean, so has pretty much Everything. every large. <laughs> I mean, look at ag, look at pharma. So I was right. also, you know, I worked in pharma for about a year and a half. Uh, I think I feel like a lot of our large players are incentive based. So <laughs> that's actually something I've been working on. I went to Sacramento a couple of weeks ago. And actually got to meet with some, with some of our representatives to talk about incentives and talk about policies that make sense and continue to push solar to the forefront. So, you know, I think you got to have you got to be strategic. And I and I think as much as lobbying can feel like a dirty word, it's one of those things where it's like everybody's doing it. So you have to do it, too, to be competitive. Oh, yeah, that's. Interesting point, for sure. So, I get that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think y'all want to start a lobbying service. I'll sign up. <laughs> I, I mean, well, you know, with the ties to cannabis, and I mean, yeah, pizza hey, subsidies. You, know. you think we could get? We should. They should be incentivized. Well, anyways, yeah. Let me help know. help you put solar on your on your cannabis warehouses, right? There you it. go. I don't think many buyers or business buyers anticipate that they're going to be lobbying within six months of acquisition at the state capital for incentives, but that's an interesting element of things. Can, so can six we, months in. I mean, can we actually pause on that for, for a second before we catch up on the, on the six months in? Like, how did that come about? Because I, I think I think Eric's spot on. The idea that a small business acquisition entrepreneur is going to end up on, you know, the, the, the state capital lobbying to, you know, the, the state congressman or, you know, whatever their respective state uh, has, uh, how did that, how did that come about? Was it an invitation? Was it like grassroots? You started reaching out and scored a meeting? Like what, what, what did you do? And so it was through a trade organization in California called okay. the California Solar and Storage Association. And there's a national version of this as well, SEIA. And so they do invite their small business members to be part of it. They have regular policy calls to keep us up to date on things so that we can speak intelligently to the representatives and, you know, be there as an employer, be there as, you know, a voter and a taxpayer to say, you know, you need to make sure that uh, my business can continue to survive. Because one of the things that's so difficult in solar is you're always sort of fighting with the utilities and the utilities, as you know, have tons of money for lobbying power. 
So right. it's sort of this David and Goliath thing where like you have to you have to push back. You have to be that voice on the street or otherwise the utilities are just going to run roughshod. And that's sort of what's been happening in California. Fortunately, there are lawsuits coming up against them, but it's sort of the, the only <laughs> it's sort of the only way forward. Well, I hear the public utilities in California have a really great reputation and, and have no <laughs> no scandals at all. Uh, well, never. It, it, and to be clear, these are fossil these are fossil fuel based public utilities like coal and big energy that don't want alternative energy sources. Or what's the what's so the they've friction? incorporated? So they actually had a state mandate that they had to include a certain amount of clean energy through running through their distribution channels by twenty. 20 and i don't think that that was renewed but it should be the issue is more around the net metering piece and sorry to get like deep sorry listeners you're getting deep into solar right now but when you put solar panels on your roof part of the payback is that you can sell your extra energy back right. to the grid and get paid for it what the utilities have done is cut that rate and said well we don't actually need to pay you that much because if we were to quote unquote buy this on the open market, we would never pay that much, which is something they never do, right? Like internally, that's not how they buy and sell energy. They would sell it at, you know, peak demand time at a time when, when it's most con convenient for them or most beneficial for them. And so they're not sort of offering that same strategy to homeowners. And so it's cut the, the it's extended the payback period and made it more difficult to sort of sell it to homeowners. Justified. I mean, there's ways to mitigate this, right? With with the right battery technology, so on and so forth. There's technologies coming out that will automatically sell your energy at the right time, at peak demand times. So there are ways that homeowners can control that better now. But just the fact that the utilities were able to change it from paying you about 70 cents to a kilowatt to about 13 cents a kilowatt is huge. Like that, it, it shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been okay. And then the utilities who are also in charge of administering rebate incentives to the homeowners, they've also cut all the funding for that. So they're just, they're sort of talking out of both sides of their mouth and only doing what's best for them while taking all the ratepayers' money and like not investing it back in the community. So yeah. interesting. There you go. Soapbox. Yeah. No, that over. was fun. I appreciate oh, it. It's, it, it's, it's super fascinating and obviously a very timely subject, right? It's a, it's a hot topic. So it's still really interesting, particularly to a lot of people in, in places where solar makes a lot of sense. So let's take a step back for a second because we've, we've, you know, before we talk much more about that acquisition, you had kind of a, a big false start in terms of a deal that went under LOI and got pretty advanced, but didn't ultimately close. So can we... Step back a second and share what you're comfortable with in, in, in that deal process, because I, I think, you know, a lot of deals, when people talk about deals dying, right, they're signing LOI, financials don't look good, right? You walk away a week or two later or something like that, right? Like the, the stories of kind of getting pretty advanced into the process and having a, a deal ultimately unravel, you know, d don't pop up nearly as often. So I think, I think it's an interesting an, an interesting story to talk about, if you don't mind backing up to that for a second. Yeah, ab absolutely. Let me let me talk about my failures. Uh, <laughs> but I hope other people learn from it, right? Search is a learning experience. So this this was, I had been under LOI with a couple of other opportunities or very near it, but this was the first real serious one. So yeah, got under LOI. It seemed like 
you know, a reasonable valuation. It was a distributor of medical equipment. And so that's called DME. And basically, they sell sort of medical equipment and accessories. So it was a lot of like knee braces, wheelchairs, neck braces, things like that, things you need after surgery. And the interesting thing about this business was that they were real, they had really close relationship with these workers' comp insurers. So basically, people who get hurt on the job, they want to get back, they want to get healed and, and get back to work as soon as possible. So they're willing to kind of like pay a premium for the right equipment and make sure that like, you know, folks are going to get it to their delivered to their house on time, things like that. So it seemed like, you know, you have strong payers in place. You're not reliant on cash pay or individual pay. So it seemed like there was a lot of really interesting aspects to the business that I that I appreciated. And they distributed nationally, even though they were based in, in outside of L.A. So we started that process. I think that there were a combination of things that happened. I probably should have gotten Q of E involved earlier. But at the time, I was feeling a little bit overconfident. And I have a background in investment banking. And I was like, whatever, I've done financial diligence. Like, I can get this started on my own and not yeah. pay out of pocket. Mistake. Yeah. Let just, me jump in for a second because that is such a classic mistake. And I feel like, <laughs> no, you know, the most sophisticated buyers that I've worked with are the ones that have struggled the most because of that exact reason, the overconfidence. And if, and, and I've had several deals with like incredibly sophisticated, like decade long investment in banking experience at like the highest level who've had deals blow up at the doorstep because there, there's a knockdown drag out fight about whether or not checks clear when they go out or when they, actually settle and how that impacts working capital. And at this point, the seller is furious and the deal dies when if they had had, you know, QOE two or three months earlier, the deal is probably closing. So that is such an important point, Catherine. So I appreciate you being honest about your overconfidence there. Yeah. Co <laughs> and Cosign. And, and, and I'm always a little bit surprised when we field inbound leads to our law firm from other lawyers, because there's that, there's that kind of initial reaction where I'm like, why on earth would you be reaching out? But, but it's that same thing, right? Like yeah. I've even had conversations with an M&A lawyer, like literally that does what we do at a very prominent law firm, but very upmarket that's called to kind of talk about small business and things like that, because just changing from like bulge or middle market down to small business is enough of a change where even someone that literally does exactly what we do, you know, sees some value in, in some outside ex expertise. It's such a great point. And, you know, I've talked about it with legal services. It's the same thing with Q of E, right? It's, I mean, it's, 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 well, it's, the, it's the adage, Kevin, of, you know, a lawyer who, a lawyer who represents himself as a fool for a client. I think it applies mm -hmm. well beyond the law, right? Like, I think you just called Catherine a fool, and I'm not. I, I think I'm I mean, a little offended on her behalf. No, I, no. I, listen, I, I, I totally get it, right? I think the disconnect is that you've got so many irons in the fire in a transaction of this nature, right? You've got the legal yeah. component, the business component, mm -hmm. the financial component, the lending component. Your investors, you are hurting a lot of shepherding a lot of different things, and so in a normal setting, yes, Catherine and you know sophisticated financial people can sit down and can parse through these things. No problem. But when you've got, you know, and, and oftentimes you have a day job too, right? On top of all, and a family on top of all that. And you're expected to be able to do a deep dive on a small business that keeps records and paper 
It's just, it's a recipe for disaster. So Yeah, this business nothing. did have all of their records on paper. That is a very, <laughs> very good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fortunately, I was pretty much searching full-time. I did have a part-time job working for Wall Street Prep. So I was mostly, but I was mostly working like on the weekends or, you know, there would be like maybe just like one week a month where I'd have to go do a seminar. But you know, I was flexible enough that I that I could focus and I probably could have focused a little bit more. But turns out I don't know accounting as well as I thought I did. Yeah, that's good. There you go. I don't know, like, you know, that much about revenue recognition in some cases. But so anyway, I so I had already done like probably a couple of weeks worth of work, asked for a lot of documentation, had done, you know, some a little bit of like a, a, a cash analysis on my side, proof of cash on my side. Right. And then was going to market with the numbers that I put in the deck pre Q of E, my, my estimates. And then when I finally got the Q of E involved, they found some major issues with the way that revenue is being recognized. There was also some significant client concentration, which ended up blowing up later on after my deal fell apart. So through all these things, these things I probably could have addressed earlier in the deal, but I think I was just so excited about finding something that seemed like a reasonable valuation. And I was like driving back and forth from San Diego to LA almost like every week, every other week to go through on a Sunday, just like comb through all of these files, comb through all these paper documents. The seller was like not very cooperative and would say like, oh, I don't know how to pull that report. I don't know how to do this. And I had to like log into his computers and like pull all this stuff. And we were drafting in the the purchase agreement. Kevin was drafting the purchase agreement with me. And uh, we found some of these significant financial reporting issues that I think the seller was probably intentionally covering up. And it, it fell apart. Yeah. And the oh, and the financing for that deal was so hard because it was... It was more than a typical SBA loan. So I had to yeah. try and go conventional. And negotiating with the conventional folks, they wanted equity as well. And it was more equity than I really wanted to give. And it was so it was so tight. It was so complex. I mean, I was spending hours and hours and hours trying to, you know, field this deal and get it in front of the right conventional lenders. It was so uh so, so talk about that for a second, because I, that, that's probably going to catch a lot of listeners, particularly coming out of the self-funded search community and familiar with the SBA process. It's, it's probably going to catch a lot of them by surprise, like your debt lender was asking for equity, like un unpack that and, and break down what conventional lenders at sort of that level of the market were, were looking for and asking for. So the conventional lenders at this end of the market typically... They don't even give you the time of day if you're right. under two million in EBITDA. That's and the I biggest like, hurdle, right? Is right. getting a banker to talk to you, right? Exactly. And so, and I was, I was based on my estimates, which turned out were not correct. Um, <laughs> I was very close. I think I was at like one point nine million in EBITDA. So that's how I sort of got these calls to happen. But I still had to field, I don't know, with fifty, a hundred emails, lots of intro calls that didn't go anywhere. And so there are different types of lenders in this at this side of the market. There's sort of total private credit. And then you also have like SBIC lenders. 
So the total private credit folks are way more risk averse. And they were asking for, you know, a cap structure of 50% to 50% equity, which I thought was like, there's, there's no way, like no one's going to, no one's going to give me that much equity because there's the, you'll have no return. Like that's so ridiculous. Yep. So I had to go, I went for the SBIC route. So I was talking with the SBIC lenders and what they have is a program that allows them to sort of like recoup some of their losses in the event of a, a default. So they have some kind of guarantee. It's not as, I, I would say it's not as well-backed as the SBA, right. but it does offer, you know, some kind of a cushion on the, on the risk side. Now, to be, to, to be clear, just for listeners, the SBIC program is an SBA program. What, what I think you're- Oh, you're, I mean the 7A loan, right? Yeah, I think Sorry. what you're referring to is a, a conventional lender with a 7A loan, that guarantee looks different than what the SBA guarantees to a to an SBIC, a, a small business investment company, if I have the acronym correct. Um, right, because it's more it, it like portfolio-based instead of yeah, like single exactly. loan-based. Exactly. But yeah, so they are getting a piece of that guaranteed. It's, it's just a different structure and it's not the full, I, w- I want to say 75% of a 7A loan. So it's still a riskier loan for those SBICs. Yeah, exactly right. So I was talking to an SBIC lender um, you know, we came up with a structure that started to make sense. They wanted, so they were willing to give me a, a conventional loan, which typically has shorter terms. So usually it's like five years instead of 10 years. It has a different amortization schedule and things like that. So it makes it more expensive in general. And then they also wanted a piece of a lot of times they'll negotiate for like a piece of the preferred or they'll ask for a warrant or something like that. And so that's where the equity piece comes in is they want to hit a certain return profile within their credit portfolio. And so you have to sort of be creative with them in structuring something that makes sense on the debt side for your cash flow and then also makes sense on their return expectations. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a super fascinating structure, but I mean, yeah, in the small business market and first time buyer, that's got to be a struggle to try and pull that together, which which I think is what you found, right? Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Catherine, so go ahead, Kevin. Well, I was just going to say, and this this is in the backdrop, like to to Eric's point, right? Because you're you're doing all this, but when you're searching, you're oftentimes still working, et cetera. And Eric said, you know, you, you have a family, hopefully okay to say, shortly after that deal blew up, right, you got married. So so mm-hmm. through this time, you're also planning a wedding, right? Planning oh, yeah. Yeah. your your future with us. I mean, there's so much going on at this time and the deal falls apart. I just, but before we pivot, Eric, I, I just want to, I want to tie that out because I think there's two fascinating things there, right? the the deal that that deal falls apart which is a, a big enough deal in and of itself but a month four, five six weeks later you're under LOI again on the deal you ultimately closed on which is like breathtakingly fast i think most most fast. listeners would really probably fast. agree so just just tie out that piece of the story before we sort of shift gears a little bit of how that transition from the deal blowing up into going under LOI on your next business went yeah, thank you. So we're not just like harping on the sob story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I realized that this deal was like the financials were falling apart. I could tell the lender was not feeling 
comfortable about things. Uh, I think it was like, you know, early September. And I kind of dragged it out. I was like, oh, give me one more week. Let me see if I can like pull something together. Maybe I can negotiate yeah. something. Maybe I can get, Everybody you know, a bigger seller note. Right. I was like, just give me one more week. And yeah. but but Robert, Robert was right. So Robert was guiding me through this. And he was like, this is dead. Just just pull the plug. But he gave me one more week. And, you know, I was like, all right, fine. It's really dead. <laughs> and it was one of those rare rainy days here in San Diego. And it was raining like all afternoon. And I literally just walked around outside in the rain for three hours. I was like, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. You were like, what does God, my future why? look like? Why is this field dying, God? <laughs> like it was the end of the world. Yeah. I love it felt, it, and then, it felt, and then you were under all the while, like five weeks later. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And this is a, this is a month out from my Even wedding, by the way, I got married on October 22nd and this was like September, I don't know, 18th or something. I mean, not to make light of it, I know it's probably very stressful. These are not, you know, inconsequential transactions. Your whole life is changing and you get emotionally invested. And I think that's why the quality of earnings outside advisor is so critical is they've got that objective, non-emotional appeal to it. But it is so, a somewhat funny visual of you in the rain, just devastated over yeah. the deal. But <laughs> I, I, So, Catherine, I had a, a, a shockingly similar story with another buyer who is probably arguably my most sophisticated client ever. And he had a similar QOE issue, deal dies, and it was a working capital problem. And if he had done quality of earnings three months earlier, it would never have happened. He comes back, and I won't say his name for privacy purposes. Maybe he'll come on. He's an incredible guy. But he, he comes back probably three, four months later, another deal, same industry. And he executes like a Navy SEAL. I mean, everything that he did wrong in the first deal, he now crushes in the second deal. I mean, he's running this thing like a well-oiled machine. He's got investors lined up and, you know, financial diligence. Tell us what you learned from that first experience to that second experience, because obviously you, you learned and applied a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, to your point, there's, I think there's an element of confidence that comes into it as well, so that you feel confident asking for what you need and negotiating for things that, that make sense, right? So I think that there maybe is a combination of things, overconfidence, or maybe fear of like paying other folks. I don't know. Anyway, there were a lot of things that I certainly learned. So yeah. my second deal, the, the one that I ended up acquiring I found through a, a broker network that I was already that I had already worked with before business exits. I've had a good experience with them and been staying in contact with them with with other opportunities. And so I saw this one come through in early October and I was a little bit late to the game. It had already been on market for a little while. But I came in and I was like, hey, I know you guys like I did these other like I, I looked at a couple of other deals, you know, almost went under LOI was one of your other listings and so they were like, okay, you know, we feel confident that you would be, you know, a competitive buyer that like you belong in the mix here. And so they got me in to the process. I actually had to revise my LOI three times. It was a pretty competitive process. So I went from probably, you know, end of the first week of October, and it took another two weeks negotiating with the sellers, getting to the price point that they were expecting, making it work you know, from a capital structure perspective, up until the point where it finally got signed, I was negotiating up to about until about two hours before um, my rehearsal dinner. 
I was still oh, wow. on the phone with them, trying like getting them to sign. And my wife was like tearing her hair out. She was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> so I wanted. I, this is I, not. I'm glad. You, I'm glad you said that because I wanted to pause on it. Like I can only imagine. Like my wife would have lost her mind. I mean, so may, maybe finish out the story. But I want to do here. I, I do want to hear for a second how your your then fiance now wife kind of navigated through through this this process in parallel yeah i mean i absolutely could not have done it without her obviously she was still working so she works as a she was a management consultant she recently left so we were you know on her health insurance she was the w2 her parents actually own the house we're like renting a house from her parents right now at a very reasonable rent value otherwise we would not be able to live in san diego and so you know all of these factors of her her support and who she is really helped me be successful in my search and you know her patience she understood how important this was for for me and so gave me the space to do this stuff and so when i was you know working on these LOI negotiations and just like really really deep into things she was handling a lot of the last minute wedding preparations yeah. and so I, I mean, there's no way I would have made made this whole thing happen without her. So, <laughs> no, that's that's incredible. So you close on your solar mate, and tell us about the company. How many employees? Where is it based? What's the? How does it work? So it's fully remote. I mean, technically, we're based at the PO box down the street from me. <laughs> I've heard that doesn't work, Catherine. You remote work doesn't work. You gotta be in an office because without standing by the water cooler and chit chatting about your weekend, it's the hallway conversations, Kevin. The the genius is in the hallway conversation. Uh, (laughs) No, obviously, we're we're massive proponents of remote work. It doesn't work for everybody, right? But when it can work, it really works. And you know, I think the biggest thing with remote work, my pitch to everybody is you can recruit so disproportionate to your business because there are are so many capable people who are the people who don't need oversight in the first place that are demanding remote work right now. So love that. How many employees do you have? So we now have 12 employees. It's basically doubled since I took over the seat. So that's, I guess, been good. Did some learning experiences there as well. (laughs) What what did you, you doubled the headcount. What did you add? Combination of people. So we have a mix of folks that are, some are based in the U.S. and some are based in the Philippines. And so our U.S. folks are project managers, more like account managers, doing more of the client communication. And then our Philippines folks are administrative support. There are a lot of our processors that do a lot of the paperwork. So there's a lot of like applications you have to fill out on different utility websites. It's kind of like using TurboTax. And so they are the ones doing a lot of that data entry um, and making sure that doing quality checks on all those documents. And where are the U.S. folks located? Mix. I think we actually have three, well, no, four in California right now. I think, I don't, I don't know exactly how that happened. I didn't necessarily go after California. But it's helpful because I've already got workers' comp in California, so I don't have to apply for it in another state. And then we've got one one person in 
Florida, and we might bring on a second person who's currently based in Texas. We'll see. We don't compensate people who get hurt here in Florida, so <laughs> that's an issue. So that's cool. So a lot of people's objective is, hey, you know, I want to buy a business because I want to control my time and I want to control my location. And the remote, the remote business thing is a very attractive one, although I, it's a little bit of a difficult thing to find. So you were able to acquire a business where you could theoretically work from anywhere. Sad. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah, true. I mean, I think it depends a little bit because you always have to make sure that you are sort of aligned with your client expectations, right? So your clients might want to have a phone call or whatever. So there might be certain time zone things that you have to be aware of. I didn't, I didn't come at search with the idea that I wanted a remote business. I think I came at search saying, you know, I want to have autonomy and I want to be able to build I was actually really focused on building kind of a holistic and supportive culture. I think as a result of many of the experiences that I had had in the past, I was like, you know, I want to leave this patriarchy, right? Like I want to, like, I want to, I want to, I want to build a system around like trust and mutual respect and, you know, have a business that runs efficiently without a lot of micromanagement and like without people screaming at each other. And you feel like you were able to do that with this, your solar maid and the fact that your remote hasn't, you know, hindered your ability to build a great company culture. I don't, I wonder about that. And I do think about it quite a bit because one thing I noticed was that when I came on board, quite a few of the folks were fairly siloed and they mm. were, there was sort of a heavy-handed management style that I inherited that didn't really work for me. So I've had to sort of adjust, but I think every time I speak to my team, I bring these things up. And so I'm sort of this broken record where I'm like, I want you to be accountable. I want you to feel empowered. Like I want you to take over this process and tell me what you think can be better. And I'm going to help you fix it. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to you know, do all the IT stuff, upgrade Salesforce, bring in consultant, make sure all these things can get done. But like, I want you to sort of buy in to your own ideas. And so I think that's been, that's been fairly helpful. I, I have noticed a sense of relief across the team that, you know, they do, that it's okay that they talk to each other and collaborate more. And they don't feel like, like when I started, like they were pinging me on Slack all the time, sort of like clocking in and clocking out. They're like, oh, I'm online now. Oh, I have yeah. to take lunch now. And I was like, okay, like go take lunch. Like, why are you, why are you telling me this? <laughs> Joy. Kevin, will do, Kevin, will, Kevin texts me photos of his food. I do. Uh, I do, yeah. <laughs> Just like, Kevin, I'm not interested in your egg salad sandwich. Like, thanks for the. So, you know, and I think maybe, I, I don't know if y'all have experienced anything like that in the past, but. I, I, there is there's certainly a transition to sort of bringing people into what you want the new culture to be and letting them know that it's okay to have criticisms of of the process and what's been going on. Yeah. Are your people or is it productivity based like how do you let them go, right? So for us like mm -hmm. you know our our folks are lawyers, right, which are fairly type A or more they skew more type A in the first place and then on top of that you know, everything for us is production based. So, you know, I don't care where you are, right? Hit deadlines, don't make clients mad, do a great job, 
and then you get paid based on what you produce. And so do it from the Caribbean, do it from the woods in Minnesota, do it at 2 a.m., do it at 3 p.m. I don't care, right? Mm -hmm. How do you view it? And are you able to have some of the more routine tasks be done remotely and, you know, with that level of autonomy, despite how does, how does it work for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So it's sort of a combination of factors. So firstly, we, we have this shared email inbox that allows for a lot of transparency. So I can check in and say, oh, you know, whatever, Melanie, I'm making up a name, had 15 tasks assigned to her today. I usually expect her to get through 15 to 20 tasks. Did she get through those in, in the last day or two? Or I can look through and say, like, are any of these tasks sitting? Are any of these tasks older? Do I need to check in and see if there's, like, something going on with this person? Understand right. if they have, you know, if they had a family emergency or if there's some question that they, that they can't move forward on or whatever it is. So I, that's basically how I keep tabs on these things is through that and through our Salesforce so I can see our monthly volume of, of throughput. So we're a managed service, but there's also this almost like, I don't know, IT ticketing aspect to it where it's sort of clear what the process is going to be. I have an expectation of what that timeline is. And so I know like you should be able to get through X amount of projects every week. And so I sort of look for that in our other reporting. So it is pr production-based Yeah, thinking. absolutely productivity-based. Because yeah, productivity I, I also like, you know, our Philippines team, they usually come online around 5, 6 p.m. my time. And then they'll work overnight, right? Because they're about 13 hours different. And so, right. I, you know, I'll definitely stay up and talk to them, but I'm not going to stay up till 3 or 4 a.m. talking to them and like checking in on what every second of what they're doing and whatnot. So, you know, I find these other ways that I think are relevant. And so, and they know, right? They're, they're aware that these are what the targets are and they just kind of need to get through them and, you know, we'll be here to answer questions if they need it. No, I love that. It's, it provides a lot of uh, flexibility in the business model, but, you know, <laughs> at least what I found, Eric, feel free to disagree, is that level, that level of a, autonomy like there are things to get done, but I'm otherwise like, you don't have to clock in and out. You don't have to report in, you know, at specific times and things like that. Just build so much additional trust in, in the, in the team. When you give them that trust, they give the trust back. And I, you know, you talk about how do you build culture remotely? I feel like that just goes such, such a long way, at, at least from the seat I'm in. Well, that's, so I'm going to go on a rant for a second, right? Because that's the culture right? The culture is, this is a workplace where you as an individual have demonstrated a capacity to produce. You don't need to be, you know, you don't need me breathing down your neck to be a capable, you know, high achieving employee. And so our culture is one where you can go to your kid's soccer game at two o'clock on Thursday. And I don't care, right? You can be there every day to pick them up, drop them off at school. You can you sit down at the dinner table every single night on time. You can work from your house. You can work in a, you know, a short-term rental in Fort Lauderdale. You have that control, right? And I wrote this kind of off-the-cuff post about this idea the other day, and it actually made it all the way to the front page of Reddit in the, uh, 
It was actually the anti-work subreddit. So that I don't know that, that you know. Oh, it was they, probably. Fine. Fine. I don't know. That probably wasn't the the, the method you were going for. Yeah. That. Well, you know, I was my, my my theory is it had to have picked up steam otherwise to make make it all the way to the front page. But point being is that, yeah, wait till they find out how much we actually work, right? But. The, the the culture is the building an organization where people can have a life in addition to working and giving them back all the commute time and giving them back all the commute cost and giving, you know, and, and making sure they're there for their kids' bedtime. That is, and it attracts the people who never needed the oversight in the first place and the ones who, who they'll, they'll filter out if you're doing what you're doing and tracking metrics, you know. So, yeah, no, and we've and we've run into that, and I don't know if y'all have. It seems like you've done a great job of kind of vetting your hires before they come through. But there, there have definitely been a couple of occasions where people didn't work out because they apparently did need a lot more oversight yeah. than they initially let on, and so that can be a very challenging conversation to have. And there's going to be yeah, those, think, and you fire fast. You know, go ahead. Kevin. I think the I think the only person we've really struggled with that internally at our law firm is really Eric, but it's really hard to eject a partner. Well, try so. living, try living 10 minutes from Disney world and, you know, <laughs> world-class, you know, golf resorts and, and, uh, and being accountable. The key is you make big promises up front, Catherine, really paint a vision. And then you don't deliver on any of it. It'll, it'll carry you. It'll propel you for a while. So that's, that's good. It's only been four months for me. So, you know, the shine hasn't worn off yet. I'm sure I'm sure my team's going to get sick of me. Well, it's actually been five months, right? Because we're into June. So when did you so? Oh, yeah, well, it was fe February 13th. So we're almost on the, the five, five month months anniversary. So, Catherine, um, you know, a lot of people are interested in buying businesses because of not just the geography control, but the yeah. life control. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, talk to us about that. I mean, entrepreneurship is not, not a lot of work, right? It's difficult, but you have a great ability. double negative, Eric. Is that, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, thank you. It was called mid sentence. I start talking before I know what I'm going to say, like Michael Scott, but it's a lot of work, right? But the, the beauty of it is the control, right? The control and the building. And that talk to us about the control you've built, you know, you've started now, you've been building for five months. What does your day look like comparatively to what it looked like previously in corporate and other things? Yeah, so I would also say that my I think my experience since close was pretty wild. So I mentioned that there were some rules that the utilities changed in California around how much they pay you for your extra solar energy. That went into effect on April 15th. And so there was a huge surge of folks trying to get their systems approved before April and and I came in in mid-Feb. And so we literally had five times our normal volume, had no idea wow. the, the sellers had not prepared at all for this. I was like, this is how our team ended up getting larger. So I was like hiring frantically, training people, trying to learn some, like something I learned like two days before I was trying to train somebody else on, going through and doing kind of like the day-to-day -day tasks that you know, all of our team does, our project managers and our Philippines folks were doing. I was doing those two right alongside with them, you know, working like 16, 18 hours for two months straight. It was so, so intense, but also an amazing learning experience and allowed me to see how many of our processes needed improvement because there were a lot of things that broke. 
There were a lot of things that worked at, you know, 100 to 200 projects a month that do not work when you're doing 500, 600 projects a month. And so that was really eye-opening and motivated me to sort of jump in and be like, hey, we can fix this. Let me see what I can upgrade. Let me see what I can like think through, automate, or just like stop doing altogether. And I think that that was something that just really helped me continue to get out of bed every day because I've always been that kind of person where I'm like, oh, let me problem solve. Let me improve this process. Like, let me tweak this and make it better for everybody, make everybody's lives easier. And in corporate environments, that was never well-received. Yeah. They were mostly like, shut up, do your job. (laughs) And uh, so, they, they were actually mostly like, I'm sorry, what's your name again? Right. I mean, <laughs> <No>. it's like, <laughs> that's, saw, that's, that's how Kevin, that's typically what Kevin is saying to me on a day to day basis. So I, I can definitely, I, that resonates with me deeply, Catherine. But, so was that, do you think that was what precipitated the sale then? That's such an interesting development. And, and so you ramp up from 200% to 500% or you ramp up to 500% of typical production in April. Here we are in June, like, was that a one-time temporary spike or what's, what's, what's going on in the industry? Yeah. So that was a, that was a spike. I'm not sure. Maybe that had something to do with the sale. The sellers also had their second child. So they're a fairly young couple. They're only a couple years older than I am. And the sellers are husband and wife. And the wife actually gave birth a month after we went under LOI. So she's literally like helping me with like financial diligence. And like, then they were like, oh, we have to go to the hospital. (laughs) Like eight eight and a half months pregnant. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So, so I think that, you know, she, she was very, very, very involved with the business, you know, was working at all hours and was really dedicated to it. And I think that they realized that that wasn't going to be sustainable for them to have two babies. Like they already had a two year old and they were going to have this other new baby. And so you know, I think that they wanted a lot of time freedom as well to be to have back with their family. And maybe they were aware of some of these, you know, broader structural changes. It has been a little bit of a shift. I would say that the whole industry in California was absolutely exhausted after April. And so May, a lot of people took time off. We're seeing that come back with a lot of renewed interest in battery systems and other rebates, so on and so forth. And so you know, that's what we've been targeting. I've been, that's what I've been targeting on the business development side is outside of California and folks that are really focused on on batteries because those are the systems that are going in now. So, you know, I've had to learn quickly and shift and find new opportunities for us to continue to, to build. But I think, you know, one quiet month was actually a little bit of a blessing because it gave us a lot of time to make sure that Folks were trained appropriately, make sure that we could uh, improve our systems and processes and just be ready so that next time we hit something close to this level of volume, we can, we're not like running around with our hair on fire, you know. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. We're coming up on time, I think, Catherine, and really appreciate you spending a few minutes. I, I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we wrapped up though without, I mean, we talked a lot through the search process, closing your deal, things like that. Let's, it feels like this is a reverse chronological podcast. Let's even take one step (laughs) further back and, and, and wrap up there and maybe talk a little bit about your path and transition 
from what your your kind of early career steps were into this harebrained idea of you know what I'm going to do I'm going to go buy a business and I'm going to you know be become an entrepreneur because you have a super fascinating background that we we didn't cover early on right you've got a a bachelor's degree and if I'm reading this right in nuclear engineering right what? you've got a master's degree in medical physics and then an MBA from Rice I mean very diverse very science based background which you know in retrospect solar fits right but how do you go from that into investment banking and some of your other steps into this idea of you know what i want to go buy a small business and i, I want to you know pivot from this career I've, I've i've been building really since graduating from high school in, into what you're doing now and take it head on Catherine. Yeah, are you a genius because i'm reading this resume no. i think i think you're a genius. <laughs> i don't think so don't shy away from it there are plenty of other folks that graduated with me in nuclear engineering. But I think the entrepreneurship thing, I think, has been uh, something I've been around for a long time. So my parents both decided to start their own kind of Main Street businesses. Okay. My dad switched careers when I was about seven to start. He, he had been managing restaurants. He had to travel a lot. It was really hard on our family. So he completely switched careers and started doing, in the mid-90s, doing securities and insurance sales. And he's built a business on that that's been successful for like the last 30 years. And then my mom was a dentist. She had been working with other dentists and they honestly treated her horribly. She faced a lot of sexism and she decided to start her own practice when I was about 10. And so I watched her build her practice from the ground up. I watched both my parents, you know, I, the, the first, first jobs I ever had were being in their office, answering yeah. their phone, doing their files, vacuuming the carpet, everything like that. So I think it was sort of in my blood that you could have that level of control and impact over your life and your family's life. And I went some odd routes along that path, right? So I was really, I, I loved physics when I was in high school, but my mom was like, you can't get a degree in physics. You have to do something more applied. So I was like, okay, yeah. I guess I'll do engineering. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in nuclear engineering, right? And then I was like, oh, there are no jobs here. I guess I got to do something else. So I pivoted and I was like, well, I could do medical imaging. That's kind of the same stuff. It's the same science. So that's what I did. I did medical imaging and I thought I was going to get a PhD. Academia was a terrible place for me. It's a terrible place for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and that entrepreneurship bug came back to me and was like, hey, why don't you take some of this technology you're working on in the lab, see if you can bring it to market. I didn't realize how naive I was at the time. There was, I had a friend of mine who was like part of this startup group in Houston. And so we were part of, we went to this accelerator and we were trying to get our ideas off the ground. And we were like, yeah, we like, you know, formed LLCs and all the rest of this junk. So you totally were thinking fought. like, you were thinking like startup mode, mm -hmm. like classic. Got it. Okay. Well, yeah, so of, that's, a, that's what I had you've thought. You've kind of got like a startup vibe to you, Catherine, like, you know, a tech base, you know, some sort of forward thinking, but you kind of met in the middle, right? Between like our typical, yeah, exactly. very profitable, boring business, tree trimming clients and the tech driven startup folks, you're kind of in the middle where you're like, I'm going to buy a business, but it's going to be, you know, in solar, right? So kind of a unique, you're kind of a unique buyer. Thanks. I think so. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's what brought me to SMB and the whole idea that you could acquire a business, right? So my my startups completely flopped, and I was like, oh, I guess I should learn something about business, right? I guess I should go get an MBA, 
right? And so that's, and then through that process, I learned about entrepreneurship through acquisition, but I needed to make some money. So I did banking for a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds like a great use of uh, Credit Suisse and not an the, uncommon. The bank formerly known as. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, fair. Thank you. It sounds like a lot of people though, right? Like there's so it many does. people that are like, you know, I'm doing this because don't know what else to do. And you got Goldman Sachs knocking on your door and you're like, okay, I'm going to go work for them for a little while and then I'll figure it out. And you're kind of miserable. And then you go do, you know, and then you're like, I'm going to go buy a business. Pretty common story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. So I'm not that. Unique. Well, appreciate you spending the time, Catherine. Really, really great discussion and fascinating to hear your story and, and congratulations on, uh, yeah. On closing a deal a few months in now, excited to see where, where that grows. Wrap us up with next steps for, for Catherine Dextrays. Are, are you just kind of all in on the one business for now? Or are you already kind of thinking, how does this become a platform to grow something bigger? What are your next steps? Catch us up on what you're looking forward to in the future. And, and we'll wrap up with that. Thanks. I actually struggle with this a lot because I guess... <laughs> As we just discussed, I'm kind of this idea of like startup-y person. And yeah. so I have to, uh, I really have to rein myself in when I'm talking to my team because I'm constantly like, oh, maybe we could go into this service line. Maybe we could do this, you know? And I have to shut my mouth and focus on executing on the strategy yeah. that we're that we're dealing with right now. Like I, I have to cultivate what works before I start adding in new crap. And like a, a less than six months in, right? So... <laughs> We got a ways to go. We're we're a little over a year in, and I promise there are no text messages between Eric and I about like, okay, should we should we launch, you know, this new practice area, or or what about acquiring that, or you know, I, like yeah. I totally the get lobbying it. service I just asked for. Yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I actually split up an LLC while we were talking, so uh, S and B lobbying group is live. Got to be a five hundred one three C, you know. Yeah, we're totally nonprofit. We're not seeking any pecuniary gain in the process of lobbying at the state capitol i love that that's amusing we could talk about that for a little while but um <laughs> well Catherine, this has been fun especially you know like i said at the beginning we didn't know each other and it's been really fun hearing your story and so thank you for taking the time to share with us it's been great yeah and, yeah. and great to catch up we, we always like to give people the opportunity at the end i know you're on twitter other places how how do how do people find you i am on twitter i'm more of a lurker so I think I'm okay. going to remain a lurker. But Sound if you want to reach out to me, Catherine at yoursolarmate.com and happy to discuss all things SMB and obviously get on my solar soapbox. Love it. Awesome. Thank you guys right. so much. Thanks, this Catherine. was fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.